Hello there and welcome into this edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Election Day 2020 has come and gone, and recently on The Meeting House, there was pre-election and post-election coverage. From Family Research Council, Ken Blackwell offers comments from an Election Day conversation about the overall election season, the importance of Christian participation, and observations about the prospective results. Also, prior to Election Day, John Stimberger of the Florida Family Policy Council presented his perspective from the Sunshine State, and you will hear from him as well. Then from Focus on the Family and its Daily Citizen website, Bruce House Connect shared the perspective of Focus regarding the impact of the sanctity of life issue and provided comments regarding the case before the U.S. Supreme Court on whether or not a faith-based adoption agency can decline to place children in homes headed by same-sex couples. You will be hearing from that conversation. And on this edition of The Intersection, the first African-American judge to be elected in the state of Arkansas, Joseph Wood, someone who was found as an infant, adopted from an orphanage, and dedicated to following and exhibiting Christ. You'll be hearing from him. Finally, Danielle D'Souza Gill has put quite a bit of effort into researching the life issue from a variety of perspectives and has developed a variety of ways for those who are pro-life to refute pro-abortion myths and positions. You'll be finding out more coming up. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Ken Blackwell is Senior Fellow for Human Rights and Constitutional Government at Family Research Council. He's the former mayor of Cincinnati and former Secretary of State and Treasurer for the state of Ohio. On Election Day, he shared his observations and explored the actions of various constituencies, including evangelicals. From that Election Day conversation, this is Ken Blackwell now. One of the things as uh, a political analyst that I've, I've looked at over the course of elections, for instance, in 2008, Obama won with a certain uh, mix of voters. Uh, he did not have that same mix in 2012. Uh, his winning base was smaller, uh, and, it, and, it was, and it was different. It actually was not as diverse as his first base of, of support. Uh, this time around, uh, Trump uh, can, can win with a, a, a slightly different mix of voters. Uh, there are some who suggest that uh, he, he might be down a tick or two among senior voters. Um, he might be up a tick or two among Hispanic voters. But I'll just use African-American voters as an example. Uh, Romney, uh, McCain, both got 4% of the black vote, uh, and then Trump came along in 2016 and got 8%. Every prediction uh, by, by seasoned veterans that I see now, looking at the polling data, uh, suggests that Trump will get about 15% of the black vote. Uh, that is not uh, an outlandish stretch of... Um, of, of thinking, uh, given that in 2004, George Bush nationwide got about 11%, but in some key battleground states like Ohio, he got as high as 18%. If that plays out this way for Trump, uh, he that, that different mix 
where he's ticked up among Latinos, he's ticked up among blacks, he's ticked up, you know, uh, he's ticked down a little bit among some seniors who have been stricken by the fear of, of COVID uh, or who, for some reason or another, don't like his personality. Uh, he will, in fact, have a different winning mix of voters. But the most, the core of his base has been Bible-believing Christians uh, that delivered uh, in a big way for him. And that's his anchor group because he delivered for them, whether it was in terms of religious liberty, whether it was in terms of his uh, appointing originalists to the Supreme Court. You, know, you can tick off the list, uh, and, 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 and the reason that that base is his core isn't because they have some blind faith in him. It's because he's delivered on his promises that he made in terms of his policies uh, and, and uh, that he said that he would deliver on in 2017. Uh, in 2016 and 2017, he's delivered in his four years as president of the United States. So anything as you've watched the results come in, I presume you'll be keeping your eyes very, uh, peeled on what is occurring. Uh, anything that you're looking for, especially with respect to the, the results that are, or perhaps some trends? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly interested, uh, and again, uh, being uh, a, a veteran of these things, understanding that uh, with modern technology, you can you can you can sort of take a, a a balcony view of the whole field of play. I'm concentrating on on four states. I I, I can't abandon my Ohio mm-hmm. because there hasn't been a Republican to win the presidency without carrying Ohio. Uh, but I'm looking at Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Uh, the president won those three states collectively with under 90,000 votes. Uh, those are three states that are in, in, in play. Uh, he can afford to, to lose one of them if he picks up uh, New Hampshire or, uh, or, or, or Nevada. But the reality is that those three states, particularly Pennsylvania, have boiled down to to being real battleground states. And so I'm looking at that, and so I'll be anxious to see, again, what the percentage of support is for Trump coming out of the Hispanic and black communities, uh, whether uh, those folks who, uh, in the Christian community, that that want to reward his, his having delivered on uh, the Supreme Court, having delivered on... Uh, pro-life matters, having delivered on um, religious liberty, and a whole host of other things. Uh, And the fact that this president, actually before COVID-19, had the most robust uh, economic uh, activity, uh, the the most prosperous economy in all of human history uh, and and American history. So uh, that's what I'm looking at. I'm, I'm, I'm concentrating on four states. And I'm looking at uh, voter groups within those four states, looking at what their turnout, uh, what their turnout happened to be, uh, and um, keeping my uh, eyes focused on the on, on the returns. Ken Blackwell from Family Research Council here on the intersection. The council's website is frc.org. Next up on this edition of the intersection, it's John Stemberger.
president and general counsel for the Florida Family Policy Council. In our recent conversation, he discussed a variety of topics relative to the 2020 election, including Christian involvement in the electoral process. Here now from that conversation is John Stimberger. I think that, um, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, Christians are a different place. Um, You know, a lot of people are looking at the character of the candidate um, and and asking that. But but to be honest, that really, in my 35 years of working in politics, is not as important and not as decisive as the policy issues. Um, You know, I think that the bottom line of politics has to be policy. Policy affects whether dad's going to have a job. Uh, and whether he's going to be at the table, uh, you know, with his children eating dinner every night or whether he's going to be working two or three and jobs to try to make, make ends meet. Uh, it determines whether unborn children live or die in their mother's wombs. Um, the foreign policy is kind of a big deal. Domestic policy, this is the bottom line of, of why we elect someone is because these decisions affect the dinner table. They affect real people, uh, our families. And so this is why politics becomes so important. And I think that um, while obviously character is always relevant, one has to look at the bottom line of the policy. Um, you know, you think about William Wilberforce trying to end the slave trade uh, within the British Empire back in his day as a member of the parliament. He would hold hands with as ugly and as gross of a, of a, of a fellow uh, you know, countryman as he had to in order to win the goal of ending the slave trade. He was not afraid to get into bed, so to speak, with somebody that looks stinky, right? And so that, I think we have the need to have that same kind of resilience in our thinking about politics. There's a war going on. I mean, this is not, this is not peacetime voting. There used to be a time with the Democrats and the Republicans, they did have a lot in common. You think about the Kennedy days, right? We understood communism was bad. We understood capitalism was good. We understood what a marriage was, what a family was, what a boy and a girl was, right? Now we have mm. craziness. I mean, literally radicals have taken over. And so the parties couldn't be farther apart in their understanding of the world. It's important that we make sure that the candidate and candidates that we vote for line up with biblical standards. And the Bible addresses so many of these issues that we're finding. Of course, we talk quite a bit, and these are very important issue with res- issues with respect to the life issue, with respect to definitions of sexuality, religious freedom. But as you talk about dinner table conversations, even matters such as the economy and some of these other issues. In fact, Florida Family Policy Council offers a voter guide. You can just kind of go down the line and you can see these various issues. And the Bible speaks to all of them, as as I see it. I think that's right. And that's a great point. I do think that the scripture speaks broadly to every area of life. But here's the interesting thing. It doesn't speak clearly and prophetically to every area. So in other hmm. words, take an issue like immigration. Uh, I mean, there's no clear passages that tell us how, how big the wall is supposed to be or how long we're supposed to detain children to figure out whether the people that say they're the parents are not rapists and are not human traffickers, right? So there's some tough policy decisions that have to be made based upon wisdom. But when it comes to an issue like what is a man and what is a woman, what is a marriage, what is a family, uh, when does human life begin? The fact that God says he knits us in his mother's womb. I mean, these are clear things. So we can speak with prophetic clarity 
on issues relating to life and marriage and religious liberty and even, well, religious liberty in the Scripture would be called conscience, right? The word conscience mm-hmm. is used over and over again in the Old and New Testament. The freedom of the mind, as the Supreme Court would say in some of its earlier cases, uh, the ability to believe freely and to worship freely. I mean, this is, this is the impulse that created America, right? The Puritans uh, couldn't worship uh, the way the Church of England required them to, so they literally birthed America out of the spirit of being able to believe freely without coercion from the government. And so these are critical concepts um, that will have a definite effect. I mean, look, we're, we're running into a soft totalitarianism in our world. We just are, where we're being marginalized. Christians are being marginalized. Um, and pushed to the, relegated to the edges of society. John Stemberger here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the Florida Family Policy Council by going to flfamily.org. Well, I had a chance recently to talk with Bruce HouseConnect, judicial analyst for Focus on the Family and contributor to the Focus Daily Citizen website. In our conversation, he shared about the ministry's commitment to the life issue. He also discussed the case heard recently before the U.S. Supreme Court on whether or not a faith-based adoption agency can decline to place children in homes headed by same-sex couples. Here now from that conversation is Bruce HouseConnect. Yeah, it always has been a pillar of, of focus on the family to defend life. And, and this election really uh, highlights just how important that is. We have always uh, tried to focus in like a, like a laser beam with, with our Christian constituents as to the importance of voting their values. And, and even this year, there are a couple of state ballot issues like in Louisiana and Colorado that directly... Um, address the life issue. And so it's bringing Christians out to the polls and, and um, in greater numbers than, than uh, we would even have expected. So it just shows that uh, Christians can be motivated and they can show up in, in great numbers. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And we, we would hope going forward, we can actually get more people to the polls who believe in life and believe in the value and sanctity of uh, human life from conception to grave. And so that's that's kind of what we've always stood for, and we always will. Amy Coney Barrett, who faced harassment, especially during her hearings to be an appeals court judge, is someone that has faced some religious harassment. Well, the first case, or one of the first cases that she is going to be hearing, and that's coming up tomorrow, as a matter of fact, has to do with the arena of religious liberty. And if you would, just your comments about Amy Coney Barrett, her confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court, will it have or do you think it has had any effect on the election? And then take us through the case that is going to be heard tomorrow. So what was that, a three-part question? (laughs) (laughs) I'll try and get as many parts as I can. I think, number one, she's an excellent, excellent um, uh, addition to the Supreme Court. What quality, um, a great judicial philosophy that that harkens back to her mentor, Antonin Scalia. She and um, Clarence Thomas are going to anchor the conservative wing of that court for years to come, in my opinion. Um, I think she's impacted the election because she highlighted the need for good judges, good justices, 
um, of a of a constitutionalist variety, and I think that always reminds people the importance of voting. So I think that brought out conservative voters. Um, and this case coming up tomorrow is a key religious freedom question having to do with the Catholic Social Services foster care agency in Philadelphia, which was basically drummed out of business by the city because they refused to certify same-sex couples as qualified to act as foster care parents. Now, there are plenty of secular foster care agencies in Philadelphia that would be happy to process requests from same-sex couples for foster kids, but the city decided to go after a religious uh, belief of uh, Catholic social services and essentially put them out of business for failing to uh, fall in line with the with the uh, politically correct requirement that everyone approve of same-sex marriage. So that key religious freedom question will be before the court, and including Amy Coney Barrett tomorrow morning. All right. In light of the decision handed down in the Bostock case, I know that these are different cases, but you do have some common some commonality uh, with respect to some of the issues. It seems so. What do you what do you project? What are you looking for, perhaps in this case? I hope that uh, the court is able to focus on the um, exercise of religious freedom, whereas in Bostock, they were talking about uh, workplace discrimination. I I was a little disappointed in Justice Gorsuch's uh, opinion in that case. I'm I'm hopeful that he'll come home solidly with the First Amendment protection rights of of Catholic Social Services, which is going to impact foster care agencies across the land that are in the exact same position as the Philadelphia uh, case is. So it's going to have a major impact on religious freedom in the public sphere going forward. Bruce Houseconnect from Focus on the Family here on The Intersection. You can learn more about the Daily Citizen of Focus on the Family by going to dailycitizen.focusonthefamily.com. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. At that homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center where you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. The podcast is also available via iTunes, plus you can find it in the Media Center. There are links from the homepage. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Again, the website address is meetinghouseonline.info or you can visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from the Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Joseph Wood is a county judge in Washington County, Arkansas. He shared in a recent conversation with me how, as an infant, he was found after having been left by his mother, placed in an orphanage, and adopted. He shared with me about the impact of these discoveries and how God has worked in his life. He's written children's books that tell his story, including his most recent called Adopting Joey. Here now is Joseph Wood. 
for years I had this registry going and no one ever responded to it. And one year, uh, about 46, 47 years old, someone responded and said, uh, I am your dad and I know what happened. And it just shocked me out of all. all. And so I started doing the research and got to know the fella, uh, uh, Mr. Angel Roland Luis. And he, we found out through uh, DNA testing that he was not. But in that research, found out that uh, the laws had changed in Illinois that same year that said if you ever adopt, you can get your original birth certificate. Well, having kids and grandkids and know what a birth certificate looks like, but they were overwhelmed by the number of people who were looking for their original birth certificate. Mm. Months later, I finally got it, and it said, this is your foundling birth certificate. And then scratching my head, what's a foundling? And many of your listeners are probably figuring, trying to figure that out. Well, I looked it up. And it says, you were found, you were abandoned. And mm-hmm. that just threw me into another, what do you mean? For 46 years, you're telling me I was abandoned? Yes, you were found on this day. And this day is the day I celebrated my birthday. And so, again, all these years I've been celebrating my birthday, but now I'm looking at the, the foundling certificate telling me that was just the day I was found. You were found on this day by this man at this address, and you received an orphanage by this doctor. And it just took a lot of wind out of me. And I mean, for weeks, I just kind of pondered over this whole notion, not only being adopted, but then being abandoned um, and found in the streets of Chicago. And so I wondered if I can find the doctor who took me into the orphanage. Uh, I guess all kids going into the orphanage had to be checked out by doctors. I did the research and I found the doctor. He had died in 1999. And then I went to change my gears and say, I wonder if I can find the guy who found me and found a long list of guys by the name of Caesar Johnson, except for 90% of them were younger than me. So I <laughs> uh, clearly ruled yep, those guys out. out. Yeah, strike those. Uh, I strike them all out. And then um, I had three names le- left, and I called my wife to ask, how do I take get someone to take my phone number down when I call? And she said, well, why? I said, well, if they're shocked by anything I say, they hang up the phone, they at least have my phone number. And my wife kind of got to me, will you just make a phone call? You've been waiting your whole life. Just make the call. And that wasn't a response I wanted, but most men, we know, we just go ahead and do what they said. And so I went ahead and called. And the very first number I called, the older woman answered the phone. And uh, I said, hey, my name is Joseph Wood. I'm here in the Arkansas. I'm looking for a guy by the name of Caesar Johnson. He spells his name differently. Um, he would have saved someone. And the wife kind of, that got her attention, saved mm-hmm. somebody. My, my husband saved somebody. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, yeah, he does spell his name differently. Uh, how do you spell it? I spelled it. And she said, say somebody. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, what's your phone number? Now, I just asked my wife, how do I get somebody to take my phone number? She just asked me, what is my number? And I started, well, why? She said, well, he's 80 years old. He's hard of hearing. And I said, whoa, this, in my head, I'm thinking, this may be the guy. If he's 80 and I'm 45, 46. And so I'm in my head. And she said, hey, what's your phone number? And I started giving her my phone number. Then she stopped. She said, hold on. Say somebody, I said, yes, ma'am. Was it the baby he saved? Yes, ma'am. Are you the baby he saved? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yes, yes ma'am. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. She went on a holy ghost. <laughs> you the baby he saved? Oh, Jesus. Lord Jesus. She went in, and I just started bawling, crying. Caesar, that baby you saved? Caesar. She's screaming out. And, I mean, she is on a holy ghost tear, and uh, I'm bawling. snot nose. I mean, it was horrible. Uh Caesar comes to the phone, and he's very different than Miss Ruthie. Uh, he answered the phone, hello? <laughs> My name is, hello? He can't hear. And so she's in the background. Can I tell him when? So he starts talking to him. He comes back, oh, my gosh. 
I remember like it was yesterday. I mean, one of the coldest days in Chicago, snow and ice outside. I just put my wife and kids to bed. I'm going out of the apartment complex. Uh, and as I walk down the stairs, I see this box with a blanket and didn't know what it was. Uh, and it was moving. So I took my foot to move the blanket, the blanket moved, and it was a kid in there. I'm looking up and down the street. I can't see because all the snow and ice blowing. And I take the box up carefully and go back into the apartment complex, wake my wife up. And uh, we wake the neighbors. We start walking around the neighborhood trying to figure out where this kid came from. And we couldn't find anything. We back in the apartment complex. I finally called the police. A few hours later, they came and uh, they're walking around the neighborhood, and, and they told Caesar, hey, you saved this kid. He would have froze out here, and we're going to take him to the orphanage. And he's like, it had to be over 50 years ago, and you're alive. I said, no, it was only 46. No. <laughs> and and we started a great relation at that point. Got to visit with him and get to know his family. Joseph Wood here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website, josephwood.org. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's the author of the book, The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America, Danielle D'Souza Gill. In our recent conversation, she discussed the concept behind the book, which offers approaches that pro-life people can take in order to counter pro-abortion myths. From that conversation, this is Danielle D'Souza Gill now. I would say it probably um, was something that I, that I knew about, that I cared about before, but it really didn't kick in for me, I would say, until I moved to New York City after graduating from college, and I saw Governor Cuomo light up the Freedom Tower pink uh, to celebrate nine-month abortions without a medical reason, and he said he hopes this is something the rest of the nation follows. And about seven states allow nine-month abortions, and I just felt like the radicalization of the Democrats on this issue was something that we had to push back against, because I think a lot of people don't actually know you know, how can we respond to these, you know, pro-abortion, pro-choice arguments? So that was really my goal in my book, was to debunk all of their most popular myths. Please give me an example or two of these myths and how you would refute them. Yeah, I refute everything from a fetus as a cluster of cells to it's a human, but it's not a person, to, um, you know, there's a right to privacy that supports this. I go into social arguments like abortion empowers women, my body, my choice, um, how would we pay for these kids, the welfare state, what if they're abused in their home, maybe people are better off dead, uh, what about the fact there are so many other people in this world who are suffering, why should we care about these people? I try to look at it from all different angles, really diving into what people actually ask me about it. Are there maybe some general principles from the pro-life point of view that can be effective? I know that you're you're dealing with a lot of different myths. Are there perhaps some general principles that you that you espouse here in this book that can be effective in really striking down some of these arguments? Yeah, I would say that probably the best way to go about it if you're talking to someone who's asking you is to know all the different angles and all the different arguments because someone might ask you about something very specific that you're like, wait a minute, I had my main reason for being pro-life. How come you're asking me about this other thing? And so I would say it would just be to be equipped and to kind of know, you know, here's kind of my three-minute response on each of these topics or at least where I could talk to someone about it because I think so often we as pro-lifers kind of know why we believe this, but we need to dive in a little bit deeper. What do you think is the strongest argument from the pro-choice side? I would say most pro-lifers would probably agree that their strongest argument is something like a case of rape or incest, because 
um, that is a horrible situation. And that's something that I think we're all against. So, um, but I think what's ironic about that is that the left often tries to defend rapists and they try to say, you know, we don't want the death penalty for rapists, but they actually want the death penalty for the child. And I think that's where I would have to disagree with them and saying that if anyone deserves that, it would be the rapist. And I think the solution to a situation like this is to stop it from occurring in the first place. And it's to make sure that we keep rapists off the street. But regarding the child, the child really had nothing to do with Mm. this. The child is blameless. And so um, I think as far as the woman feeling like she doesn't want this painful reminder in her life, I would say that, you know, adoption is a great option and closed adoption where it's completely anonymous. They don't know who you are. There's no connection. And then that child can be raised by people who don't see it in light of that situation and view it just as any child as someone they've been waiting for. We have long, long waiting lists for adoption. So that's what I would recommend. Danielle D'Souza Gill here on The Intersection. You can find her on Twitter at Danielle D'Souza. That's D-S-O-U-Z-A-G. And on Instagram at Danielle D'Souza Gill. Well, we are in the closing moments of this edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more at meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, there's a link to the Media Center where you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on The Intersection Podcast. The podcast can also be found via iTunes and through the Media Center. You can find links through the homepage. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content. Conversations from The Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Hey, thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.